You know, we're right around the corner from Christmas, and there's Christmas lights everywhere, and we just had a whole pile of snow, and we were talking at Stella's about you know, different people's feelings about Christmas. You know, some people were saying they can't wait for it to be over. And, uh, you know, there's a whole bunch of different things that arise for different folks around Christmas. And, you know, with the hype and the consumerism and the, you know, the, the juxtaposition of the wintertime, which pulls us inward, the solstice, which is kind of drawing us into a kind of inner contemplative mode, and a, a pressure to engage and to be sociable and to talk and to spend time with people giving presents to each other. It's not surprising that um, many people find this actually a very challenging time of year. That's completely separate from anything that might possibly arise in the relationship of family, which none of us would know anything about. <laughs> you know. So just in terms of you know, the light and the wintertime being a time that naturally pulls one inward, and yet the, the season being one that requires a lot of social engagement, we're in conflict with our natural energies and our cultural uh, context. And then, you know, the family dynamic, what goes on in families is, you know, a whole huge rich conversation about, you know, whether it feels wonderful or whether one is missing it or whether it's, it's exasperating or whether one feels one's place or one doesn't feel one's place or, you know, the longings for a family to be a particular way. That's a whole huge thing that's also part of holiday time. And... You know, how we each navigate that is going to certainly impact our feeling about Christmas. I wanted to um, not brush those things aside, but open them up from maybe another perspective. And, you know, if we look at the birth of Jesus and what he came into this world, you know, he was coming into a time when we were really in a, a world of phenomenal duality. There was right and wrong and good and bad. And, you know, the the God who was the God that was known at that time was wrathful and would punish you if you were bad. And, um, you know, my sense was that's the kind of world that we, that, that that's the time framework and the context of what was like when Jesus was born. And his life and his, and his work and his, his message, you know, was about, love, you know. And so, you know, nobody's got a monopoly on love. You know, it doesn't belong to any religion. It's not even only specific to human beings. We can see many examples of animals that, you know, go out of their way to help and to support and to sacrifice and to risk in order to um, take care or to bring kindness or to bring some compassion. And uh, I heard some stories not long ago that I just found really moving. True stories. One of them took place in Colorado. There was a couple who um, went hiking in the summertime, and they had 
they check the weather forecast, and the forecast was for clear skies. And they went up, you know, one of the high mountains, and they didn't have provisions. And lo and behold, Colorado be Colorado, the weather changed, and um, a storm rolled in. And so it was a couple with a with a young baby, and they were up at altitude, and the snow started, and they didn't have uh, the protection that they needed. And um, the mom was um, insistent to continue to breastfeed her baby. And the dad was really anxious about what was happening because he could see that she was getting cold and losing her heat through breastfeeding the baby. But she just kept saying, no, no, just a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. And so, you know, what um, could have been a storm that might have blown over in an hour or two ended up being something that was locked in for four days. And when the couple didn't come down, they set out a rescue team for them. And they found them. And the, the dad was okay. The baby was okay. But the mom didn't make it. Because she was um, more concerned about feeding her baby than she was concerned about herself. And, you know, the the grief of a loss like that really, you know, it touches touches you really deeply. But what the dad did was he made a sculpture of his wife breastfeeding their baby as a way of honoring her life and her sacrifice. And so we see this kind of, you know, when we love somebody or we love something, we love a child, you know, the willingness to sacrifice even if it means our own life. And, and this kind of quality of love is innate. It's actually what we were made out of. It's, it's something that's natural. When you love something very dearly, you do what you can to protect, to cherish, and to take care. There's another story that I heard after I heard that story, which was also very touching, in the, in the earthquake in, in, um, in Japan recently where the tsunami was. You know, there were lots of people that were um, uh, hurt or harmed or a number of people who died. And there were fire um, firemen who were going into buildings looking for the, the, the people and trying to find who was alive and who wasn't alive. And this fireman went into the, this room and there was a woman who was there and he touched her body and there was no warmth in her body. So... You know, he walked out of the room, but there was some instinct that um, made him go back in that room again. And he put his hand under her body, and, and, and there was a baby that was there that was warm. And when they, when they put, picked her up, they, they could tell that she had been in a prayer posture with her hands held to her heart, and protecting the baby. And next to, next to her, and the baby was okay, the baby made it, was a cell phone. And on the message on the cell phone was, if you survive this earthquake, I just want you to know that I will love you forever. And you know, you, you just, you see or you hear things like that, and it just, it just opens up the possibility of, you know, a quality of love that just, 
just absolutely doesn't have conditions on it, you know. It's just something that's just wide open, you know. And so when we talk about Jesus, you know, it's not about Christmas carols, you know. It's not about presents. It's about this quality of, of, of love, of something that is wide open and doesn't have any conditions connected to it. Now, it's not many of us who have grown up knowing what that feels like, you know, or have a, a body memory of, of having really experienced that. And so it takes some massaging of our own life experience for us to move through the way love was used as bargaining tools or in a conditioned way or as a trade for something, for us to begin to get a sense of what is this love or what is the possibility of a love that doesn't actually have conditions connected to it, you know? A love that, like the sun, shines no matter what, you know? It's not about whether or not you're worthy, you know? Or the rain that falls on the ground, no matter what. It doesn't matter whether you need to drink or not, you know. But something which is just there and is given and there's absolutely no conditions connected to it. Now, one of the ways in which we can touch love is when we also begin to understand what forgiveness is. And certainly, you know, one of the messages or one of the ways of being in the world that Jesus embodied had a lot to do with forgiveness, you know. And I think, you know, most people I know in the Western world have some work to do being able to forgive ourselves, you know, that somehow who we are and the kind of things that we came into this world with, the pain we were entrusted with, you know, made it such that we made choices that later we feel some sense of sorrow around. And so, you know, what is needed is to open our hearts to ourselves and to touch the things that we wish we had done differently and to acknowledge that it's time to let it go, to forgive ourselves, that we did the best that we could with the things that we had and what we knew. And it's time no longer to hold on to a a narrow idea of ourselves based on the past. And it's an interesting contemplation, question, of what is it going to take to forgive yourself completely, to love yourself completely, just as you are. You know, and so in this way, we're also moving into another level of the kind of teaching that Jesus had, which was, you know, love was not just about, you know, the perfection of life coming into manifestation. But love was about being present with the imperfections of life. 
and bringing a heartfulness to that without judgment. And so in that way, we're moving from a world of polarity and a world of duality into something which has a non-dual element to it where everything is welcome. And so when we begin to look at ourselves, you know, what happens if we begin to open to our own experience with even the possibility that everything is welcome? The stuff we like, the stuff we don't like, the stuff we hate, the stuff we can't accept about ourselves, the stuff we long for, the stuff we hope we'll, we'll be more of. And we kind of open the door wide open and just surround it with this kind of tenderness, warmth, welcome, where everything is okay. What is that? look like? What does that feel like? How does that feel as a body experience to know that everything is welcome? Now, it doesn't mean that we can be idiots, you know, or jerks, you know, go around and smash people in the face, and that's welcome. So it's not condoning unskillful behavior but just who we are and the way we experience the world and our sensitivities and our vulnerabilities and our strengths and our weaknesses and just open the blanket up wide open and say it's all welcome. As I experience life right now in myself, it's all welcome. Now one of the things that I found which is just amazing to me is one of the most excruciating things I have ever learned to do is love. Because there's something about love which is just phenomenally stressful. Because it's like when you open yourself up to love, it's like there's nothing that you can hide from any longer. And the stuff that you don't want to feel, that you don't want to see, you don't want to know about, it's all right there. And so in a very weird way, loving brings us to the next kind of really strong archetype around the Jesus story. And that's the story of the crucifixion, the burning, you know. Because when we open up to what's there, it means that we have to feel what it is that we're experiencing. When we allow the prisoners, and we have to get to look at them in the face and see who they are, And those prisoners are aspects of ourselves that we've locked away, parts of ourselves that we haven't been able to accept. And the crucifixion is the process of looking at each of these beings in the eye and saying, welcome. And so there's this unbelievable irony that love and crucifixion go together. They go hand in hand. It's not all sweet and pretty and beautiful and like a New Age song, you know. It's a burning. But when that burning takes place in love, it's a completely different experience than when it takes place in fear. You know, to get to know oneself, to allow the prisoners out of one's heart, 
in love is a very, very different experience than what happens in fear. Now, some people have a meditation practice that's really incredibly impressive, and most of us don't. (laughs) And so the basis of meditation is to learn how to be with what's arising and not react to it, and learn how to soften around any tension or any reactivity that comes in response to that and to be present with it without reacting and just to learn how to be with things and to know the difference between the object of what is known and the awareness of what knows something. Okay? And for many of us, this is not a small project. You know, just being with something and learning the difference between the object of what's arising and that which knows it, that we're not totally identified with everything that we experience all of the time is quite a breakthrough. And so one of the things that really supports the ability to stay present with the practice, to keep remembering what we're doing, to move out of the loops of I really am essentially rotten to the core and if anyone really knew me but they'd only just see that, you know, which kind of goes as kind of like loops or wallpaper. It's like so normal that you can't even see that it's there. It's community. You know, for other people to say, hey, wait a minute, you cannot relate to yourself like that in front of me. I just don't accept that. You know, knock it off. You know, harming yourself like that is not something you can do in my presence. If you want to do that, you have to go elsewhere. People who are willing to mirror for each other our own goodness when we forget to see it ourselves. You know, what was Jesus about? Community, fellowship, people supporting each other, taking care of each other. Then we have this weird thing about resurrection, which, you know, I listen to my father talk about resurrection and he gets so wound up about it, it's just hilarious. You know, it's just really funny. But when we look at it as an actual, as an archetype, it's actually something that we experience, experience in a spiritual practice. As a, it's a regular thing, you know, where we go through processes of dissolution and something emerges from that which doesn't have the old body carrying us through to a new form. You know, I don't, I'm sure I've talked about it in this group, but, you know, this process of dissolution is something that I'm familiar with, I've been through. And, you know, it's it's deeply uncomfortable. In fact, you know, I would do everything in my, in my capacity to avoid it. You know, I'd fight it to the last ounce of fur and fang that I could muster. You know, because it's like, just, it's so uncomfortable so deeply unpleasant because it's like, you know, there's no place where you can get a foothold in what is familiar, what you have located yourself in. You know, the sense of identity around gender or culture or ethnicity or sexual orientation or family structure or religious identification. It's like all of it is dissolving. 
There's no place where you can locate yourself. And it's very different from cracking up because presence and mindfulness are very clear. Being in the body is very grounded. It's not the same as cracking up. And yet the disillusion that happens is deeply, deeply dislocating. Until one realizes that the identification with all of those things has been partly where all of our fear has been coming from in trying to defend and to protect and to name and to reaffirm this is who I am and that's who I'm not. This is who I am and that's who I'm not. These are my people and those do not belong. This is where I begin and that's where I end. And in this kind of a process of disillusion, you know, one isn't able to have those same kind of definitions any longer. And so that kind of amorphous, sentient pulp when you've been ground down and you where you locate yourself is no longer something that holds meaning for you any longer. There's some kind of a transformation process which is taking place. And what emerges has a different shape to it, a different feeling to it, a different energetic resonance to it than what was there before. Even though the continuum of the body is the same and the continuum of the history is the same, and you know, I still have a body that gender is still female. It's not like that has shifted. But having gone through that, the way I relate to all of it is very different. It's not so fixed, you know. It's not so solid. It doesn't, I, it doesn't locate me and identify me in the same way that it used to. So Christmas time is, you know, a challenging time for many people. Sometimes it's a joyous time to be with family and friends, and it's a time really to feel nourished by that, by the warmth and the connection of that. Go back and just tune into what Jesus was about. And we see the applicability in our own life, in our own practice. The importance of presence without the T. You know? That when we're present with ourselves, when we're present with another, when we're present with the animals around us, with the land around us, when we're present with the snow, the stars and the sky, what does that feel like? No, so I guess each of us needs to decide, you know, what's important and why we practice and what groups are for. And each of us has a voice and a contribution into, you know, what gets strengthened, what we move towards and what we move away from. But when I look in my own heart and my own life and my own experience, you know, I can see ways where, you know, the quality of loving, which is not anything that anybody or any culture or any religion has a monopoly on, is really central. You know, I started out absolutely hell-bent and determined to become enlightened. <laughs> Just get me out of here, you know? 
I want out. And I want out as quick as possible. Just get me out of here. And I did, I did that as hard and as intense as I knew how to do it. And 20 years later, I thought, the harder I do this, the more I am in the same place. <laughs> and so there was a real kind of turning point for me about realizing I needed to reshape what I thought practice was about and what it was for. And rather than getting out of suffering, it was a movement to meet it, to be present with it, to touch it. And it was a big shift. Now, I feel like I have still quite a long way to go in terms of, you know, letting this seep through the marrow of who I am and so that the kind of places where you know, I have habit energy or, or tendencies to judge or tendencies to find fault are more motivated by the interest to connect and this openness to, to just be with what is. And yet I feel that the efforts that I've made have, have been worthwhile. They've paid off. And nobody... Nothing has ever happened to me that was more difficult to forgive than me forgiving myself. Nothing. And yet, as I have more capacity to do that, forgive myself, and allow the love in, and let it nourish and support and radiate through me, not just outwardly, then the more... There's a kind of reciprocity of give and take that has a kind of makes sense. It's not a one-way valve. And that being able to receive love gives me the courage to do the difficult work that needs to be done. Because there's no way I can do that by myself. So here we are. Christmas is around the corner. How do you want to play it? You know, what's important to you? Who do you care about? How do you express that? So enough of me.